Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Marissa Di Natale and Chris Dorides. Hi, guys. Mark. Mark. How, yeah. How's everyone? I understand, Marissa, you're not feeling so well today. I hit Disneyland a little hard yesterday. Uh, or really? maybe Disneyland hit you hard. Hit you. Right? Yeah, that's right. Hope, now, do you just like go to Disneyland or... I went with two children. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I, I thought I maybe you went on your own. I didn't no, know. No, I, I mean, I have done that, I admit. Yeah. But um, no, I <laughs> went with a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. Oh, that, that must have been so fun. Three-year-old's first time. Oh, that must have been so fun. Her mind was blown. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine was blown. Mine was blown. Yeah. Did Mr. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? Do they you know, it that? was so crowded. It was more crowded yesterday than I've ever seen it in my life. And we ah. didn't actually go on a lot. And she was scared of like everything. She was scared of any ride that was dark and inside. So we went on oh. limited amount of rides. Yeah. This is the okay. three-year-old. This is the three-year-old. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So no haunted mansion. No, she actually, we were getting on and she had to be taken off. She had to be removed from Haunted wow. Mansion. Wow. I have, to, I have to tell you, I'm I am so burned out by theme parks. My my wife grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. And so we every chance we'd get we'd be in Daytona Beach. And of course Daytona Beach is an hour and fifteen minutes from every Disney. theme park on the planet. And yeah. I, I went to so many theme parks for so many years. I, I even had my favorite lunch place at the Islands of Adventure. I, I, you know, it was my favorite chicken nuggets. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I wonder if it's still there. Now, now here's the weird thing. Uh, I haven't been in, you know, my kids are older. I haven't been there in 20 years. I can't wait to go again with my grandkids. I want grandkids. Yeah. Give me some grandkids. Please. Yeah. Yeah. But I uh, can't wait to wait to do that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, mentioning that a, a, a lot lately. It was at Disneyland that uh, the Taco Bowl was sort of invented. Now, really? this is Fred Hochberg. He's like a, an interloper. I don't know, Fred, who invited you to this thing? I just crashed. You just crashed. <laughs> I, 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 you couldn't resist. Okay. Uh, okay. This goes to your book, right? Yes, it's it not, goes to the book, but I figured I could. I figured. Yeah, I, go far I, away. I, far yeah. away. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I, uh, my book is called Trade is Not a Full Letter Word. Because frankly, under particularly under President Trump, and just generally, trade we got a bad rap in this country, and so mm -hmm. I wrote a book about it. But one of the things I did discover was the Taco Bowl, which uh, President Trump made famous. Oh, that's so right! I forgot that. Yeah, during his campaign oh. about uh, the Trump Grill. But anyway, it was it's the, the oh. Taco Bowl. Like many things we eat, was not invented uh, in Mexico. It was actually invented at Disneyland. Um, and, oh. Uh, and so, uh, and a lot of things that we eat may appear to be foreign, but they're not. Like corned beef and cabbage was actually invented here in America from Irish immigrants who wanted to feel like they were home. And so they came up with corned beef and cabbage. So the oh. Taco Bowl's one, but that's actually at Disneyland. So that's why I butted into the conversation. Not at all. I, 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 should, I, I knew you couldn't resist. Uh, I should have introduced you earlier on. But it's wonderful to have you on Inside Economics, Fred. Uh, we we keep, we keep running into each other. It feels like I, I, well, I think the last time we were in New York at a New York Economics Club, and yes, Lael Brainerd was Brainerd was there and uh, had a conversation with her. And uh, I think before that we were in San Diego at a policy slash political function. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. And. Um, Maybe you can give us, we're going to talk about trade. We're going to talk about globalization. We're going to talk about China, obviously, a Biden-Trump policy, but in your book, of course. Uh, but maybe before we kind of move in that direction, maybe you can give us a sense of your background, you know, a uh, sense of your career. Well, sure. Well, anyway, it's it's uh, wonderful to be here and to uh, find another way to see you, Mark, and and to meet Marissa and Chris. So I was in business for uh, about 20 years, a company called Lilly and Vernon, uh, which was a direct marketing, a catalog company uh, founded by my mother named Lillian. And after the third marriage, she just changed her last name to Vernon uh, and decided enough, <laughs> enough, enough of these changes and revisions to my name. I'm going to just go with the name of my company. And it's yeah. named after the town we the business was started in Mount Vernon, uh, New York. Uh, and just as a little personal aside, uh, you know, she started the business on a ki her, on our kitchen table, and I, I made the 
comment recently that you know men start businesses in their garage because the car is kind of a locus of a boy's life as you know in silicon valley and many business started by women start on the kitchen table and just recently my brother and i donated that table to the smithsonian museum of america oh History. that is so cool oh. so uh, they have a uh, it's uh, it'll be up till 2040 so you have plenty of time to catch it if you haven't seen it yet what but happens it's after American that? enterprise exhibit what happens after 2040 why 2040 well the, the exhibit's up for like 30 30 years I oh think i see they I will see. probably do a real refresh after 30 years i got it but it traces american enterprise and how it's shaped uh our country and how you know we become such an economic powerhouse and anyway i did donate the kitchen table and it's, it's there right now if anybody sees it but so i was in business for 20 years uh after that i did a lot of work on lgbt um q uh civil rights and then ultimately joined the clinton administration uh i was the deputy the number two at the small business administration and for a short time the acting administrator and then um I was a dean at the New School, uh, hmm. School of Public Policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I spent eight years with President Obama as chair of the Export-Import Bank. Mm. Um, and the Export-Import Bank briefly was started by FDR, by Franklin mm -hmm. Delano Roosevelt 19, in the 30s, 1934 to be exact, uh, with the realization that if we want to put more people to work, exports are one way to do that. Exports create jobs and they also bring revenue in. So uh, I was fortunate to be... Um, selected to chair the bank um and i did it for two terms for the first and second term so i'm the longest serving there were certain days i was the long suffering chair of the export <laughs> bank but i was the longest serving chair of the export bank and the export bank basically as i said we we help finance exports when conventional or standard banking isn't available um, and we have the best banking system in the world, but it's best is not all, doesn't do everything. So, you know, like two thirds of the loans and guarantees that we made at the Export-Import Bank were to developing countries that have a less sophisticated taxation system, less sophisticated banking system, and therefore often needed external financing and banking in order to import power systems, um, aircraft, locomotives, this, most of our goods were more heavy capital goods would be the preponderance. Some services, but capital goods is sort of the the, the quote-unquote bread and butter of, of the kind of work the Export-Import Bank does. And just to finish, there are now about 100 Export-Import Banks around the world. Mm. And even when I was just there over a decade ago, uh, there were maybe 60. So it has grown enormously as country after country has realized we want to get our goods on the world stage. And if we need to help finance it, we'll do so. Yeah. You know, you, I'm sure you don't remember, but uh, the, our first point of contact is when you were at the Exxon bank, you, you reached out. Um, I remember vividly. Do you really? <laughs> oh, I'm so surprised. Yeah, I, I know was, that's how we met. Yeah. That's the reason you answered my phone call. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I would have answered your phone call regardless, but that I remember that conversation, you know, very well. And, uh, that, that, what, eight years, that's a long 10, uh, tenure, right? Would you say that's the longest? I'm the long, yes. Cause yeah. it's a term job. So I had yeah. to be confirmed actually twice by the Senate for right. the job for the first four years and then confirmed again for another four years. And that right. is the longest serving. Right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I want to come. We're going to definitely come back, but since we have Marissa, and I'm not sure how long we have her. Uh, and the big economic news of the week was the consumer price report. Uh, and I'm not going to tell anyone how I feel about that, but I'm pretty sure you know how I feel about that report. Uh, anyway, Marissa, maybe you can give us a sense of the numbers and you know what you think they mean. Sure. I'm sure you feel wonderful about this report. First of all, let me say at the top, slam dunk. Wonderful. I think we yeah. think we know exactly how you feel. Um, it was it was a very good report. So this was this, the consumer price index for October. Prices overall were flat over the month. By that I mean they were unchanged between September and October. Um, this was even better than ours and consensus forecast, which was expecting a slight increase. And just as a reminder, in August and September, prices were up 0.6%, 0.4%. So this is a marked deceleration from previous months. Over the year, 
uh, prices, total prices are up 3.2%. That's down from 3.7% in September. Um, and as a reminder, you know, we peaked at like nine, right? 9% back in June of 2022. Mm-hmm. So we're down by two thirds, basically. Um, energy prices drove the decline over the month for sure. So the CPI for energy fell two and a half percent over the month. Um, it had risen one and a half percent in September and was up 5.6% in August. Um, gas prices were down 5%. All energy commodities were down just about 5% as well. Um, Domestic oil production has been uh, responding to higher prices, and that's helped to bring prices down. Um, Let's see. Food prices, sticking with top line CPI, food prices um, rose 0.3% over the month. Um, They are up 3.3% over the year. They had peaked around 11% year over year in August of 2022. Um, Food prices at home were up 0.3%. That's actually an acceleration from the previous month. And food away from home rose 0.4% over the month, which was the same that they did in in September. Um, Actually, the uh, food, you know, scouring the report, uh, the only part of the report that might have been a little bit of a blemish would have been food prices. But other than that, felt like everything else was moving in the right direction, <laughs> meaning less inflation. Yeah. The only other thing, major category I saw that was an acceleration over the month was auto insurance. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Vehicle insurance. Yeah. Uh, right. But you saw the new vehicle prices did fall. <laughs> right. Both new and used vehicle prices right. fell over the month. That's right. Um, core CPI, let's talk about yeah. core, rose 0.2% um, over the month. And that is a deceleration from the pr- the prior month when core rose 0.3%. Core is up 4% year over year, right? So we're talking 3.2% on total inflation year over year. Core is up 4%. Um, this, again, just to put it into some context, core um, was up 63 six percent um which was sort of the post-pandemic peak in september of 2022 um goods prices within core are basically not contributing to core it's really all coming from core services the inflation in core um shelter which we have been keeping an eye on we know that that shelter prices are about 40 percent of core inflation Um, And they were up 0.3% month over month. That follows a 0.6% increase in September. Um, Prices for owner's equivalent rent, which we've had some discussion about in the past few podcasts, um, that was up 0.4% down, deceleration from 0.6% increase in September um, and then rents, the CPI for rents rose 0.5%. And that was the same as they had risen in the prior month. So we're looking at um, 7.2% uh, was the peak of year over year rents in September. We're down to 6.7% year over year as of October. So still very high inflation coming from shelter, but it is, it appears to be moving in the the right direction at least. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I take the CPI, the all the, to- the total index and I exclude the shelter piece, we're back to target. We're back to 2% ish on inflation. I think that's right. Yeah. And yeah. that's uh, if you take out food, energy and shelter, right? No. Oh, no, no. Just Take take the CPI just shelter as well. Just, oh. just uh, yeah, just take the CPI and of course the energy price declines are helping here. You know, get CPI oh. down, but the CPI x shelter I think is two percent. It's one point five. Okay, well, okay, even better, even, even better. better. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, yeah. Now I have to find another statistic, by the way. But oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, so Mar- Marissa, what's your sense of it? I mean, take a step back and and. What do you think? I mean, obviously, 
you know, if we're talking about headline CPI, energy is moving this thing all over the place from month to month since since August, right? So we have this big run up as energy prices rose. And now we're on the backside of that with energy prices falling and detracting. But you strip away that, you look at core, it's it's coming down. And I mean, shelter is going to be stubborn to move just given the way the BLS measures shelter inflation, we know. Um, but it everything looks like it is moving in the right direction. It just, you know, the the core services, inflation, and shelter are just going to take a bit longer to move down. And as we've said before, it may not be a linear movement, right? Like we might have some months where things pop up a little bit and then come down, but it's a really good report all around. I think it's hard to worry you want that in it. That's what I worry. I wanted you to start that way. It's a really good report. I did start that. (laughs) I I started by saying that you thought it was a really good report. Okay. Chris, Chris, you're the, it's a solid report unless you care about tobacco prices, which did really shoot up, but um, I didn't follow that. They up a lot. I didn't think you would. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is cannabis in the um, CPI report anywhere? In the basket? I, I don't know. Don't it should be, so. should it? It's not in the basket? Oh, well, that's an interesting, uh, interesting Probably question. not. Probably not. not? Okay. Well, All right. it's still illegal federally. Yeah, so federally. Probably oh, not. that's right. It's illegal federally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Hey, uh, Fred, let me be, I'll bring you in here. Uh, Marissa men- mentioned goods prices. And they're, they correct me if I'm wrong, Marissa, they're now falling pretty consistently, right? Yeah, I mean, there's almost no contribution coming from goods, really, right, to overall right. inflation. It's really all services. Yeah, and and I think this kind of goes to the one of your themes, uh, right, Fred, about trade and and prices. I mean, because of globalization and the benefits of globalization, it brought down costs and translated into lower inflation. And here we are again. You know, of course, there was the pandemic and that messed things up. But on the other side of the pandemic, it feels like uh, we are st- still seeing the benefits of uh, globalization in terms of prices on goods. Right. I mean, you know, the fact is between automation, which is also a big factor, and the fact that, and since we talked a little bit about vehicles, you know, we don't really have lemons anymore, you know, and even mm-hmm. in generally in products, you know, if 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 closer to 100% of products produced are not flawed, you know, every, every even dropping that by a tenth of a point makes a difference in cost because of, of, if a product has to get recalled or isn't is malfunctioning that actually adds to cost so between quality automation and globalization you know I mean mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little later about China but China's been a big driver in keeping our inflation at bay for the last 20 years and has been a source of uh low cost of goods and also a lot of substitution um so that uh imports have really helped us for many many years sort of keep inflation at bay and you know the amount that individuals homeowners uh, spend on um sort of food and shelter which we, which Marissa was just talking about has been steadily declining um and then a lot of it has to do with imports and and the fact that there is some globalization um Certainly, with it, with food, fruits, vegetables uh, coming from Mexico, and you know, just recently it turned out that our largest trading partner today is Mexico, not mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. which is also a big shift. And part of that is also yep. agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I recall, before uh, the relationship with China kind of went off the rails, went sideways under the Trump administration, and then of course we had the pandemic. If you go back into the kind of into the the 2000s and the uh, and the 2010s uh the, we we estimated that uh trade with primarily china but globalization more generally w- reduced overall cpi inflation by about a quarter point per annum so you know that would be instead of growing two and a quarter percent per annum it would grow two percent because of the uh the the weight on Goods prices uh, caused by or re- as a result of the of the globalization that was occurring, so very powerful. I think the and I'm going to state this, but maybe in a, uh, ask if this resonates. 
it feels like the goods price weakness we're seeing now is less related to globalization. In fact, we might be going a bit backwards here on globalization. We can, we'll, we'll talk about that. This is more about the strong value of the dollar. The dollar right. is very strong, and that's translating through. Yeah, you agree with that? Okay, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, so, Chris, anything else you wanted to add on the CPI report? Uh, any 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 blemishes that I you know we uh, Marissa mentioned motor vehicle insurance. I mentioned may, maybe a blemish on food, which is probably temporary. But anything else in there you saw that caused you any concern whatsoever? Not really. I mean, no. The shelter, the rents, obviously we'd like to see those uh, come in a bit uh, more quickly, but we know that's a process. Um, but other than that, no, it, it was, like I said, I think a very solid report, a market reaction interpreted as a solid report moving in the right direction. So, Yeah, I think I've said this before. I mean, we forecast lots of things. Some things we forecast, we're not as, uh, we're confident in some, not so much. This the forecast that inflation is going to come back to the Fed's target in a reasonably timely way, let's say by this time next year, I feel very confident in that. I mean, if it's mm -hmm. if inflation X shelter is already there and all we need to do is get sheltered back, uh, inflation back down to something that's more typical, it feels like that's what's going to happen because market rents are down and that's what drives the measured inflation for housing. Right. Okay. You would yeah. agree with that. Then. Yep. Okay. All right, good. And can I say before we move on, you know, all the things we were nervous about with regard to the economy coming into the fourth quarter feel a lot less ominous all of a sudden to me. UAW strikes over, no government shutdown. The, you know, the student loan repayment doesn't feel like it's even been a blip. Blip. Oil prices are back down to 75 bucks a barrel, 75 bucks a barrel. Or even less, right? Well, I was I took the average of WTI and Brent seventy five. Oh, yeah. That's what, yeah, right. And and uh, the ten year Treasury yield it's still you know a little elevated, but four point four five. It feels like all those headwinds we were worried about they kind of just dissipated, right? So it feels feels really good, and then that's the stock market, right? And that's all the green. Anyway, okay, let's uh, move on. Let's play the game uh, in uh, the statistics game. Uh, we each put forward a statistic. Uh, uh, the rest of the group tries to figure that out through questions and clues, deductive reasoning. The best statistic is one that Marissa never gets. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, one that uh, is not so easy. We all get it quickly, not so hard that we never get it. And if it's apropos to the topic at hand, bonus. Uh, and and Fred has said he's going to play, but I'm going to go to Marissa first because uh, that's tradition. So Marissa, what's your statistic? My statistic is... 13,000. 13,000. Statistic that came out this week. Yeah. Government statistic. Yes. Um, inflate, related to inflation in any way? Not directly. Not directly. Related to trade. <laughs> Not, no. No. Is it a price? No. Is it a number of people? It is. Hmm. Oh, whoa, geez. What the heck is that? Number of people that were at Disneyland yesterday. <laughs> right. On that I think ride. it was more than 13,000. <laughs> <laughs> well, well more. Uh, how, talking about inflation, how much is a ticket to Disneyland? These yeah, days? it's really out of control. And out it's not control. just the ticket. I mean, it's like... <clears throat> probably 200 bucks a person. And that includes for, you know, a three-year-old, then you pay 35 bucks for parking. Mm -hmm. Then yeah. you buy all the food and all the things. Right. Yeah. And it's astronomical. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, okay. Back to the number 13,000. Is this like, we're never going to get one of those, this number? Or are we, no, we, we going to be embarrassed if we don't get it? You so I'm taking a transformation of something because I think if I gave uh, you kind of the headline, you'd get uh, it right away. Oh, oh, is it UI claims? Yes, it is. The increase oh. in UI. Claims. Yeah, it's the I, increase in UI claims. Fred, Fred, week. I'm just saying, Fred, Nicely you see done. how that's done? You see Nicely how that's done? done? That's got to be impressive, right? No. That's an impressive number. Okay, there. <laughs> Very impressive. The number was impressive. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, 
I, I feels like weak tea to me, Marissa. I don't know. Go ahead. Well, Tell me why. I, I, I picked it because that they they popped up pretty popped significantly up. <laughs> than we've seen in the past few yeah. months, right? Yeah. I mean, this is like it's not a crazy number. So UI claims last week were two, two came in at 231,000, mm-hmm. but that's significantly above. They've been moving higher since the like mid beginning of October when they had fallen to about 200,000. So they're still low. There's still not really any reason to worry, but they do appear to be moving up a bit. So it's something to keep an eye on. It's something I keep an eye on very mm. closely to see if we're seeing any real signs of major weakening in the labor market. So, so far three... we've seen, you know, job openings come down, hiring come down, job growth weaken, right? But we really haven't seen layoffs pick up to any significant degree. So this is just something to watch. We think if we get to around about 270,000 a week, that would be time to worry. That would probably be the point at which you would see the unemployment rate rising due to layoffs. Yeah, I, I think we've just talk, talked about it in the past, but just to state it again, I mean, UI claims are a really good barometer, weekly data, very good barometer of kind of the state of the, of the labor market, but you gotta be really careful uh, week to week or even, you know, over a period of time, particularly post pandemic because of seasonal adjustment issues. It, it's hard to, they, they, the pandemic really messed up the seasonal patterns and uh, claims. And there is a great deal, deal of seasonality and what's going on in the labor market. So you gotta be really, really careful. So, uh, I don't get overly exercised if it's below 200k if it's closer to 250 it really we have to see a definitive breakout here to yeah. you know north of 250 275 something like that yeah and the four but, week moving average you know if you smooth it out with a four week moving average it's yeah, at 220 still, 220 okay yeah. still very yeah. low okay hey fred you saw how it was done you want to go next Yes, I can go next. Does it have to be okay. a statistic of this week or one? No, other? no, no. You can fire away. Okay. Uh, my my statistic uh, in the spirit of Marissa is nine hundred ninety five billion. Is that the increase? Well, that sounds like. An- is that how much Disneyland made yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> On you. <laughs> that has to do something with the trade deficit, right? Uh, no. No. Okay. No. Okay, not the trade deficit. Is it dollars or? Yeah, uh, it's a billion, nine hundred ninety-five billion dollars. That's that's close to a trillion dollars, that's a right? Lot of very, close <laughs> very, very close to a trillion dollars. Uh, and it's not anything anything to do with trade. It's got to do. Oh, it has with trade. to do with trade. Yes. Oh, okay. okay. It's just not the deficit. Um, it's not the deficit. Uh, is it trade with one country? Is it trade with China? No, is it? That's, uh, no, no, it can't be. Is that maybe it is exports plus imports? Maybe. Oh, I'll give a clue. It's it's yeah. it's exports from one country. Germ. Oh, it has to be China, right? No, it's U.S. U.S. exports are nine hundred. No, nope. U.S. This is um total exports, global exports from one country. Right. Germany, Mexico. No. no, it's not China. It's not the U.S. It's one country, not Germany. It sounds like a lot of exports. Uh, yeah, that's oh, why Saudi Arabia. No, Saudi Arabia is about half of that. Oh, Saudi's half of that, five hundred billion. Oh, this has got to be good. It's going to be something like Singapore or something, Hong Kong or something like that. No, it's the Netherlands. The Netherlands. Oh, oh. which shocked me because oh, you so know, cool. we do our exports are two point one trillion, so they're almost half. And they're a lot, lot, lot smaller than we are. Yeah, I guess that's uh, Rotterdam and uh, yeah. The, oh, okay. So it's yeah. trade coming through. It's coming through. Yeah, it's in and out. Right. Yeah, that number because Germany's one point seven trillion, and I think tiny Netherlands is sixty percent of what Germany exports. So that's right. Uh, right needs a little more digging, but it was like a number that just like popped out of nowhere for a country that's very, very, very small. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it must have to do with the port of Rotterdam and just yeah. all the goods from uh, Europe travel through, through right. yeah. and somehow it gets uh, 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 determined as it's in the Netherlands. That's a great, great statistic. The problems with trade data in general is yeah. that 
you know, if you don't dig down on how we keep score, it can be very misleading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a good one. Uh, Chris, you're up. All right. So I had to switch up here. So this is a fun one. Okay. $61.17. Aren't they all fun? They are all fun. $61 and what? 17 cents. The price of uh, Chicken McNuggets, Coke, and fries at at Disney World. Nope. No. No. Okay. It is Uh, the price. It is the price of something. Something. Is it a product? A good? It is a set of products. A set of products. Uh, Is it food related? It is definitely food related. Okay. Is it something to do with Thanksgiving? Oh, oh, that, oh. yes. Yes, indeed. It's the cost of a Thanksgiving dinner. It is. It oh, is. ding, 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 ding. We haven't done that in a while. That was fast. <laughs> yep. wow. Traditional holiday meal for 10. Uh, that sounds That sounds too cheap to say me. Say that again, <laughs> so, Did you say a meal for 10? Yes. According to the American really? Farm Bureau Federation, they've been calculating this for decades, I think. Um, that's, yeah. They have a basket of uh, oh, yeah. a turkey and all the, the yeah the sides right so yeah they calculate it's it's and that is down five percent oh really from last year right so that's that significant news um, price of turkey is down significantly because of the avian flu that we had mm-hmm. uh, last year mm-hmm. and then here's my link to trade um, cranberry sauce is down eighteen percent hmm. and most of our cranberries come from Canada so there you go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just strong Full dollar. facts here. Is that the strong dollar against the Canadian dollar? Uh, possibly they also had a uh, record harvest, right? They did. Oh, okay. or thank strong Canada. harvest. I don't know if it was thank a record. But Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thank you, Canada. Thank you, there Canada. You go. There you go. <laughs> um, I've, I you know, just. The funny thing about food prices, when they go down, all people think is, I'm a smart shopper. I yeah. have a <laughs> yes, great right. job. That's right. I outfoxed everybody. <laughs> That's right. right. There's no trade. And in fact, there are more turkeys. Has nothing to do with it. That's right. That's right. I'm right. really smart. I'm a good shopper. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah. So maybe we'll get a boost in uh, consumer confidence. Yeah, there. That's a good one. What, but can I ask, do you know, uh, you probably don't, uh, what was the increase last year in the cost of a Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, I, mean, I- uh, it was significant because uh, this th- this goes to what's going on out there. I mean, pr- inflation is moderating, but everyone's you know focused on what they're paying today compared to two or three years ago, yeah, and they're right. still pretty upset. And I'm exactly. guessing if if it goes up, if it's going up, you know, a modest even two percent, but it, it it still feels up. It's up ten percent from yeah. what you remember. Right, uh, it feels high. Yeah, and I think that's President Biden's problem, big problem. Was, yeah, I don't have that specific. I do have this statistic that the. Yeah. It, it costs twenty five percent more still than it did in twenty nineteen. Okay, there you go. So, I mean, do you I, remember yeah. last year having this conversation around Thanksgiving? No. I remember us having this conversation on the podcast because yes. I bought a turkey for ninety dollars. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Fred, she's not a good shopper. She no, definitely got actually, ripped off. Actually, I returned it. <laughs> you returned it. You returned it. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I thought you would put it up on eBay or something. You probably get a one hundred and ten dollars. I remember right? how insane turkey prices were last year, yeah. and I remember that everybody was up in arms with it, and it was getting so much press. And exactly, people were making it political, not realizing there was this avian flu <laughs> reducing the you know the bird population, right? And that's why turkey prices were up so much last year but i remember we had this conversation around the same time that's interesting okay one more statistic very quickly it's actually i'll give you three three numbers they're all related uh and um i hope it's not too hard uh usually when i think it's hard it's easy uh 150 1.24 1.08 i'll give you one more 0.73 and no one chat GPT this. Yeah. No chat GPT. It wouldn't know anyway. Yeah. One it's related to the topic at hand, trade. We've been talking about it. The first number was 150? Yeah. 
Uh, to be even more precise, as of today, 149.5. That's a big hint. Okay. That's a big hint. What hint is on exchange rates? Uh, yeah, it's exchange uh, rates. Yeah, very good. Yeah, the yen dollar, 150. The pound uh, dollar, 124. The euro dollar, 108. Uh, I think the Canadian, U.S. Canadian is uh, 73 cents, 73 cents. So the dollar is about as strong as it's been in, you know, ever. Uh, you know, there are times when it has been stronger, but rarely. It's really, really strong. Obviously, going to monetary policy here compared to the rest of the world. I mean, the U.S. economy has kind of led the way in terms of growth and the Fed's led the way in terms of increasing interest rates and higher for longer and, you know, thus uh, the strong dollar. Uh, but it's helping us in terms of inflation, for sure. Yes, you know, those good prices. So, Mark, can I push back a little bit? Should we yeah, be yeah. Yeah, far away. strong or weak? Because no one can be for something weak as opposed to the dollar's high or low. That, okay, fair strong, enough. You're adding a value judgment to yeah. where it is. I, 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 that is, that's reasonable pushback. I should say it's high. It's high relative to other currencies. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, good point. All right, let's uh, let's uh, Fred, let's turn back uh, to your book. And I I noticed, it, I think it was published in January of 2020. Good timing, I, I'd say. Uh, well, the day the, actually the day before the impeachment trial, so that oh, even it was, better. It was not the easiest week to get television coverage. But you got. <laughs> I have to say, I was I was really impressed by the uh, the notes of praise you got. Uh, Jamie Dimon, Fred Smith of uh, FedEx. Right. Uh, you had uh, D- Daniel Rubenstein of David uh, Rubenstein, Christian Lagarde. Oh, I didn't see that, Christian Lagarde. That's wonderful. Yeah, wow. uh, you must have been very happy to see get those kind kinds of uh, words yeah, of and praise. And Navarro as well. I got so it was great. Yeah, great. And you, yes, you wanted, I, was very, I was very, I was very fortunate. And, and it's great. I, I haven't gotten through all of it, but I've gotten through a big chunk of it. And it, I, it, I love the history. I, you know, there's so much history there that I, I go, Oh, I, I didn't know that. Uh, and I, I find that that history pro- provides a great deal of context. So you kind of walk through your thinking around trade through the prism of, six different products and services. And right. uh, you, you mentioned the taco as one of them, but maybe it would be interesting of all, all those six, wh- which one was your favorite one to do? Oh my God. Is, Are they like, is that like asking, which is my favorite kid? Is that? Which, is, by the way, people do have favorite kids. I do know that. They say it's okay. they is that right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, it for different reasons. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at the iPhone, for example, yeah. because uh, as just because it, it illustrated so much, you know, the iPhone, it takes 43 countries to sort of produce the iPhone, mm. which so it, it's sort of a, pr- a perfect example of why trade actually adds value to all of our lives. Without trade, I don't know that we you could have created the iPhone, frankly. Mm-hmm. You could not produce it all in the United States. Uh, so it's. 43 different countries, uh, set almost 750 suppliers. So, I mean, mm. it is massive, you know, and I used to t- often would tell people, you know, if you like to count your steps, well, you can thank the Netherlands because they make the thing that it goes in the iPhone that counts your steps. And if you can turn it either upright or landscape, you should mm-hmm. thank the Swiss because they make the mm. gyroscope that does that. So all these different things um, go into the iPhone. And the other thing, it also, we were talking about, I threw out the idea of Netherlands having such a high trade number. You know, only less than $10 of the iPhone actually comes from China. And yet it's an import from China because that's the last stop. Ah. And that's where everything is put together. So we we import about 16 to $18 billion worth of iPhones a year from China. Uh, and that goes into the quote unquote trade deficit with China. But only ten dollars out of the three hundred or so dollars per iPhone is Chinese, uh, but yet they get tagged with all of it. So it's one of those things where it's one of the reasons I think looking at the trade deficit is really not the most. It's it's like you know in politics people look at how much money did you raise in the quarter. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a data point, 
it's not it doesn't tell all and it it has a lot of misleading characteristics to it so i like the iphone i like the iphone partly because it would not exist otherwise the other thing i also think it was interesting was cars you know uh we still export a lot of cars but uh the top 10 cars is in the united states in terms of content own now six of them are actually what we would call american cars and tesla has four of those slots but when i wrote the book the honda odyssey was the number one car with u.s content and i actually went to the honda odyssey plant uh in alabama to actually see how they put it together but that for a long time was the had more u.s content than anything and the ford 150 pickup truck was a last i looked was about 50 percent so um you know plenty just turns around your ideas what what's american what's not american what's Mm. the value of an import and my favorite was, which they also just thankfully discontinued, the Chevrolet Spark, which comes from Korea, was 1% American. But people mm. say, oh, buying a Chevrolet, it must be an American car. It feels better than, you know, I want to buy American, I'll buy a Chevy Spark. Well, actually, you'd be better off buying almost any Honda or Toyota mm. <laughs> or Kia than the Chevy Spark, for example. Mm. So um, those are kind of some of the, my my sort of favorites I pulled out. The other thing, you got me started, Mark. No, um, go far away. We we keep, we often, we we always think about goods, you know, whether the iPhone, a car, um, services, or we have way of blessed. Uh, Farid Zakari once said that if you looked at an economy that's seventy percent services versus seventy percent manufacturing, you'd say, "I want to be in the service economy," and that's our economy. But we we don't think about entertainment, higher education as really important exports. Uh, when foreign students come to America and they study here, they they leave with an education. That's a service export, and we could we could handle probably another million foreign students coming to our country, which would both benefit a lot of private universities and public ones, and would also spread American thinking and American values to the rest of the world in in a pronounced way. Because if you if if your parents send you to school for just college for four years, that's a big investment that's a big vote of confidence in america and i don't think we take enough advantage of that so you wrote the book um because there was growing angst around trade and what it meant for americans and you know obviously president trump uh ran on a uh from a very different prism and perspective uh, kind of that's the four letter word you know kind right. of came from uh, but there's some truth to it too, right? In the sense that, you know, China's entry in, and I we pick on China because it, it's so massive and it came out of nowhere. I mean, after it entered into the World Trade Organization in 2001, it just came on the scene uh, incredibly quickly. And it, and it did, I think the evidence does show, and I'm curious if, if, if you disagree or not, but the evidence does show that that, uh, that to trade the imports from China did hollow out big parts of U.S. manufacturing and did uh, knock the wind out of many uh, communities across the country that depended on that manufacturing. And and one could argue, and then here's more a little bit more of a stretch, but I'm just going to state it and get your opinion that it, it may also have contributed kind of to the social uh, political issues we're suffering right now. Uh, you know, people felt that lost their jobs in as a result of trade and to some degree immigration that they were disenfranchised, they became disenfranchised and, and thus upset, rightly upset and said, Hey, I, I I don't know what's the right way forward, but I don't like the way we're on. So I'm going to vote for the the person who's taken me in a different direction, whether I, whether that's good or bad. Does that all resonate with you? Without question. I mean, you know, the benefits of trade are spread far and wide, including Marissa going shopping and, and saving money on her groceries. Uh, the pain or the uh, deficits of trade are often felt very narrowly. As you said, when a factory closes, the not just the economic hardship, but the social upheaval, the fact that a town all of a sudden or a city begins to not have the, the job generator that paid taxes that paid for schooling, fire, police, and so forth. And as I think, as you said, Mark, where did this really 
be felt in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio. And what do those states all have in common come 2024? They're all battleground states. So that's one of the reasons that I think trade has been such a political issue, because the places that really got hurt happen to be battleground states. You know, just to make another analogy, uh, I'm here in Miami Beach today, you know, the Cuban population has been highly concentrated in southern Florida, and it's made Florida a battleground state, which is, I would use this word, has kept our Cuba policy somewhat hostage because no candidate wants to offend, you know, if Florida goes one or two points in either direction, Trump won by three, which was a landslide in Florida thinking, because normally mm-hmm. the state's gone back. So and close, forth, yeah. So close. And that so the, our Cuba po- policy has been, if the Cuban population was more spread throughout the country, that would probably have a different impact on our politics. And same with trade. I think that trade has been such a part of presidential politics because it's it's concentrated in a number of states that really got hurt um a little bit somewhat with nafta and certainly with china yeah and the, and the interesting thing is that uh now both political parties democrats and republicans uh have a very jaundiced view of trade and you know of course china's the poster child for that angst and it does feel like uh, there's been a sea change in policy, and it has it's having real implications. Uh, we've gone from globalization, increasing trade, increasing immigration, increasing capital flows, increasing foreign direct investment, all the way we uh, the, the global economy links itself together in the, in the 2000s and the 2010s to. Uh, here's we have a debate about what the right word is but you know pick your word de-risk i heard the president say yesterday when he was talking right. to the folks in 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 uh san francisco uh deglobalization you know so forth and so on and you can you can see, you can see it in the trade statistics so if i go and i add up us exports imports divide by gdp that went from 10% of gdp kind of in the after world war 2 in the 60s and 70s then it really took off and is roast about twenty five percent by the financial crisis, and you know, you know, since then it's been basically sideways at best, and more recently started to come down. And, and actually, trading patterns with China have shifted. Uh, you know, China, uh, we're trading less with China, and as you pointed out, we're now trading more with uh, with Mexico and Canada and Southeast Asia and so forth and so on. So it feels like uh, this train has kind of left the station. You know, we're going down the path of deglobalization does, does that is that fair and i think that is fair i think yeah. there i think that is fair you know i remember over a decade ago i was we were talking i was with uh, at that time secretary geithner tim geithner and i said i don't know why the chinese don't just buy us off if they just spent another hundred billion dollars on us they could buy boeing airplanes and soybeans and mm. and hogs and become a great customer and take the pressure off the trade deficit, which I don't think is that important, but take the pressure off. And I think it would have eased a lot of relations the way Japan did. And But mm. China, in their own way, was didn't like some of our policies and therefore wouldn't... You know, I think their politics got in the, in the way of, of, mm. of finding ways to smooth things with the United States. And they did nothing to fix that. So, you know, they they very much have a lone warrior kind of view of things and that... It, and it should not shock us why where we are right now with China. But on the other hand, in a positive way, I would say, mm-hmm. if I look mm-hmm. at, if you look at U.S.-China relations versus U.S.-Soviet Union, uh, you know, before the breakup of the Soviet Union, the advantage we have with China is we actually are more intertwined and have a lot more trade, and that has forced both sides to find some common ground from time to time. And frankly, I think the rest of the world is uncomfortable choosing between China and the U.S. on a number of things, certainly in places like Africa. And that may that may force us to find find a path because they're not going to want to have to continually choose. Mm. And so that I'm I'm that's my optimism that that might be a, a path towards less of a collision course and more competitive 
certainly competitive and somewhat cooperative at times. Oh, so so just so I understand what you're saying is because Europe, because Africa, Southeast Asia, other parts of the world, they really don't want to get in the middle of this U.S.-China thing. Uh, they don't want to pick sides because that doesn't make sense from their own economic perspective. And by so doing, that will put pressure on China in the U.S. to maybe it, nice. come to terms may not be the right way to say it, but, no, but at least play nice, play nice with each other. Don't hit each other over the head. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it, you hit each other, you can't expect everybody else to fall in line. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that might, in what you're saying, that does feel like it's kind of sort of what's happening here uh, right. to some degree. Right. Europeans are saying, hey, guys, really, can't you can't you just figure something out here? Yeah, yeah, and Europe is much more tied into their. They export a lot more to China than we do, so that's that's a trickier issue for them. Certainly for Germany, right? The thing that makes it a little bit more complicated with China, though, from a U.S. perspective, and and perhaps for the rest of the world too, is it doesn't feel like they play fair. I mean, and maybe that's just my American bias. Uh, no, they don't play fair, and they, they are play a bad fair. actor. You yeah. know the fact that. You know, the thing that President Biden, uh, two of the deliverables or outcomes from that meeting with uh, Xi was about fentanyl, finding a way to sort of reduce that and make sure we have some military communications so we don't have a near miss or an accident that causes a problem. That China broke that off, you know, that didn't have to happen. And on fentanyl, I don't know what the reasons are, but whether China... China could crack, could have cracked down before. Maybe they like the fact that see the United States, they can tell their population. The U.S. can't even control their own population. They're all drug addicted and shopping addicted. And and so they may have, in a certain way, looked the other way deliberately. Mm-hmm. But my point is they could have done more to stop it. And they also, I mean, we look at trade. One of the things, Mark, is we're just coming out of the, the, the pandemic. You know, were it not for trade, Companies like Pfizer would have had a much harder time. It, it, it was a German-U.S. collaboration that created that spectacular vaccine. China, not wanting that, um, went their own way with a far mm-hmm. inferior product and with real detrimental health and, and, and higher death rates because they did not have that. So there are ways we, we get, you know, it's not so simple. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. And in the case of China, the fact that their vaccine didn't work was one reason why they shut down for much longer and why their economy came to the precipice, I think. And they just right. as someone violent. said, they went from a zero COVID to zero policy. Yeah. Like overnight. Overnight. They saw the social unrest developing and they go, oh, OK, you can't this this can't can't stand. So just to be a, a bit forward looking here, uh you know, again, it, it, the history is rapid globalization in the 2000s, 2010s, a kind of uh, financial crisis, and then President Trump and now President Biden's kind of following similar policies. Globalization has gone sideways at best. It, what is the future hold here? I mean, is it continued sideways or are we going to be able to kick in again and uh, enjoy the benefits of globalization or What's the future hold here, do you think? I mean, I think the challenge, I think you comment on it, Mark, is, you know, politically, if you look at Congress, for years, when Democrats wanted to get a trade bill passed, they relied on Republicans. And when we look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, um, it lost votes. For, it, you know, there were no votes on either side of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats. So um, I think trade deals are really very hard going forward. And mm-hmm. I think that's why the one of the reasons the Biden administration and Secretary Raimondo and others have worked on, it's not a great, we don't have good acronyms in the government, IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Right, right. <laughs> Clearly, we don't have marketing people working on these code names. But anyway, yeah. so that's why I try not to use too many acronyms. Actually, in my book, I have I have about 30, 20 pages of ac- explaining what these acronyms I mean. I saw that, it's yeah. complicated. So I think the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is a response to saying, all right, we're not going to pass a trade deal, but we have to find a way to work better on 
on logistics, on um, supply chains, on harmonizing those things. And that's still running into some difficulties right now, certainly on digital trade and uh, the trade pillar of that. But that's that's I think I think that makes good sense. I think it's the best we can do right now. And if people don't think it's good enough, then we're going to have to reexamine where, where we stand on trade. But I don't think we're ready to do that. So it's, my read on what you're saying is uh, you're optimistic that we don't necessarily need to go down a darker path here, that the, 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 the kind of tensions between the U.S. and China don't need to unravel into something more serious. And there's good reasons to think that would be the case. But you're also saying pretty difficult, at least in the foreseeable future, to see any kind of trade deal or other effort to kickstart globalization again. We're kind of on the a deglobalization, de-risking path here, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I mean, listen, yeah. we trade with a lot of countries that have a trade yeah. deal. You yeah. know, you don't need to have a trade pact, a trade agreement in order to trade. We've been trading with Vietnam for years without a without a, a free trade agreement. That's not required. Uh, it, it adds some certainty. Uh, it reduces trade barriers and tariffs, and it makes trade easier and more harmonizing. But we can, you can trade regardless. And, you know, I think one thing that really separates us from China is, you know, China has this China 2025 yeah. policy. Mm-hmm. They really don't want to, imp- they would like to be almost an autarky, you know, not importing anything if they could. And the, the COVID vaccine is a good example. Mm-hmm. We thankfully, are, we are still the most open country in the world. Um, and foreign goods, whether it's um, cranberries, uh, back to Chris, or or avocados, which I put in, in the book and so forth, you know, come into our country and we live a better life as well. We have more choices, uh, lower prices. Um, and I think we're now in a period, and it came with the um, Inflation Reduction Act, of also balancing jobs and imports. And mm-hmm. when it came to electric vehicles, you know, there was a real tax preference if they, if the electric vehicles were uh, manufactured here with American mm-hmm. components. So we, there are some trade-offs, and partly, what I was hoping my book would do is. Is let people. They're always a trade-off, you know. Mm-hmm. We can say yes, we want those jobs. That may mean we have fewer electric vehicles immediately, and but we've we've made that choice. Hmm. There's a, there's a lot of different things I want to go ask you about, but uh, we're, we are running short on time, and I do want to turn it back the conversation back to Chris and Marissa. Chris, maybe is there anything you want to explore while we have Fred? Uh, maybe maybe one thing. I think early on in your uh, comments, Fred, you mentioned um, you know it's not just deglobalization that's going on. We also have a period of potentially enormous technological change, and I'm curious if you think those two trends are are linked, right? So one theory could be well, if we were going down the path of technological innovation, more 3D printing, right? Maybe globalization was already going to be pulling back, independent of the p- politics here. We're going to just manufacture more things in the US or locally because technology enables it. Do you see that as a a factor in all of this or how is that a factor? Absolutely. I'll give you I'll give you uh since you guys like statistics, you know, when I joined the Export Input Bank, we <laughs> used to calculate how many jobs were were generated by a billion dollars worth of exports. And it was like 7400 jobs when I started. By the time I left 8 years later, it was in the 5000s. Huh. And just to put your point, I think with technological changes and that labor is a smaller and smaller portion of manufactured goods, uh, there's less of a reason that companies would be looking for a low-cost labor environment. I'm not saying none. I'm just saying less, as you pointed, and 3D printing and so forth. So those and all those things contribute to it. The other thing that's also contributes in the automation and technological is greater customization. You know, the people are talking of a point in time where you could customize your own sneaker with colors and so forth. Well, there's a real advantage of doing that right here because people want to order it and you're probably going to locate next to a UPS or a FedEx hub so that you can deliver within days. So those kind of trends um, will certainly go be more onshoring and nearshoring as a result. And that's, and you know that plus, 
I think China's under President Xi is seen as too unstable, both unstable internally because of Xi is such a strong-handed and, and strongman, and B, U.S.-China relations are so fraught that I think that has certainly contributed. A lot of Chinese companies are opening in Mexico because mm. it's just it's deemed a more reliable trading partner with the U.S. than yeah. say China is right now. Marissa, anything you wanted to bring up? Um, well, you, uh, Fred, you mentioned at the top of our conversation that Mexico is now our biggest trade partner. So I'm wondering also, we spend so much time focused on China and the relationship with China, but how does the fact that we're trading more with other partners kind of change the geopolitical landscape and our priorities abroad, do you think? Uh, that's a great question also, because, you know, I one of the things I learned when I was chair of the Export-Import Bank under President Obama, and that was, many said to me, you know, the U.S. has ignored Central and Latin America, you know, and, and frankly, China made large inroads into those places. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. hopefully that does change that dynamic. And, um, you know, we share a large, a long border with Mexico. Um, there are large numbers of Mexican-Americans and so forth. So I would think that begins to change that dynamic. Uh, very much so. Um, and, uh, you know, so that has a role on, on geopolitics and, and how the how those those relationships. I mean, just the way I also said, the fact that I think we have a different um, working relationship, even as poor as it may be at the moment with China, but partly trade is one thing that has kept a little bit that glue together and has created some, some way of even if we de-risk, we're not going to be able to totally decouple. You know, we had very little trade or other relations with the Soviet Union. You know, we had Pepsi and Stolichnaya vodka. I mean, there were not a lot. Of, there were not a lot of in the those early days, and I think that made for a more brittle relationship. Um, for sure. You know, I, I give you another another example. I discovered in my book. You know, we don't do a lot of trade with Turkey. Um, and as a result, it's often been a more brittle relationship. We don't have as much trade, ed including education, tourism, and so forth. So there's just less non-governmental interaction that would maybe keep company, keep both sides sort of on the, you know, provide some guardrails. Well, that's an interesting point. I, I wonder if there's, I'm, I'm guessing there must be studies kind of looking deeply into that point. You know, if you have deeper economic ties, you have, you have more stable political ties too. That's an interesting. No, point. of course, you it know, Russia and, and gas to Germany that did not, yeah. provide, that, that yeah. was not the case then, yeah, but not, you know, yeah. it doesn't mean it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it does, it does have some value. Well, I want to end the conversation this way. Uh, we got a, an election coming, big one. It, uh, I feel like every election, I think it's the biggest one in my lifetime, but I think this is going to be the biggest one in our lifetime. It feels like it's going to be Biden v. Trump. Uh, let's just assume that it is for sake of uh, conversation. What does trade policy in the world look like on the other side of the election if Biden wins re-election or Trump wins re-election? How, 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 how are you thinking about that? Well, I think that if... Or are you thinking about that? Is that on the radar screen? Say that again? Is that on the radar screen? Is that a is that something you've been thinking about? Uh, somewhat. I mean, yeah. I, I let me say this. I guess I haven't really wanted to think too much about President Trump <laughs> okay. re-entering the White House right. from, from a whole host of reasons, uh, but including trade. I think that, you know, it exacerbated and made worse our relations with our some of our closest allies, like Canada, you know, the, to, the, to say Canada poses a national security threat to the United States is somewhat laughable, mm -hmm. and Germany as well. Um, you know, so if we want to find ways to improve things with China, for example, which is certainly our the largest and most important relationship we have, um, finding ways to do that with other countries that we are close to is the best way of doing that. If China can't pit us against France and Germany, the EU, that would be a, that's a good thing. So I think President Biden is far, far as changed the entire dynamic of our relations with with those European partners and with the developed world. 
one of the areas that we that we face a real problem, I think, is what everybody called the global south, but or developing nations. And I think the rift between the developed world and the developing world has gotten wider and wider. And COVID did not help. Um, immigration and migration policies were were seen as part of that in terms of how the world treated Ukrainian refugees versus refugees from, say, Africa and the Middle East. Those things are really fraught. And uh, I don't see uh, if President Trump is reelected, those, there's no way that gets better. That only gets worse. And it gets worse at our peril because countries like Russia and China are delighted at that rift between some of our what we thought of as our natural allies and partners. And so President Biden is far better positioned to try and stitch that back together and to heal that, which would be far better for us in the long run. I mean, Africa is going to be one of the largest continents in population in our, well, maybe not my lifetime, but in our lifetime, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, before the mm-hmm. mid-century. Mm-hmm. And um, we, you know, we know what President Trump called African nations. Mm, yeah. <laughs> not to be repeated, because I don't, we don't want an R rating on this podcast. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Well, the, we're going to have to have you back, because I had a, a lot of other directions I wanted to go, but we just don't have time to do that. Uh just uh, out of courtesy, because I, I, I you know, I kind of led the discussion in a certain direction that might be frustrating you a little bit. Is there something you wanted to say that or focus on that we haven't done? I, this is an open-ended question. Uh, do, do we miss anything you want to chat about? Yes. Trade is not a full letter word. It's a great Christmas gift. And it <laughs> should be on the list. Uh, absolutely. And I, I, I uh, <laughs> concur with that. Uh, yeah. I will uh, tell you what George Will did say when, when the book came out in 2020. He huh. George Will in the Washington Post said, this is the one book President Biden needs to read about trade. So oh, I think that was pretty yeah, good. That's a, that's a great one. Great one. Yeah, very good. Yeah, indeed. A, a strong endorsement for me. So everyone should read it. And again, it's um, it, the thing I find really interesting about it is it's it's well written. But the history, the history is so cool. Uh, you really learn a lot. Uh, and uh like the whole, uh, lots of the historical background, very important. Okay. And you don't that, want to read, you could get the audible and you'll have to listen to my voice. That's all. <laughs> you know, you got a mellifluous voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Radio, voice for radio, voice for podcasts. Well, it was great to have you on, Fred. Thanks so thank much. You. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, thank Fred. you, Mark, for inviting Thanks, me. Fred. It was a lot of fun. And Marissa, thank you for toughing it out. I hung on. I you hung, hung on. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. The, the whole, Disney thing was really critical to the conversation. So really appreciate that. Yes. Thank and, you for the Disney plug. It helped me get it, jump in the conversation early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, with that, dear listener, we're going to call it a podcast. Talk to you next week. <laughs>